Okay, so this is Judicial Demeanor. Our presenter is Judge Anna Huberman. I think all of you here should know Judge Huberman. She has been tremendous uh, for the Justice Courts uh, since she was elected uh, to Country Meadows Justice Court in, in 2012. She put that, created that court from scratch. She has done a marvelous job for us. Uh, she teaches a lot at the Judicial College. And uh, let's give her a warm welcome. It is. Okay. <clears throat> All right, good morning. So today's class is demeanor. When we talk about demeanor, we normally focus on uh, the judge being nice and not losing our temper, not yelling at litigants. But there is a lot more uh, that has to do with demeanor. It has to do with how we present ourselves on the bench, what the public perceives of us um, as judicial officers, and how we represent the court as judicial officers. Um, so that is why I've tied this presentation in with working with self-represented litigants, because it is self-represented litigants that usually are the ones who create the more issues for us in court in dealing with demeanor, with making sure that we are uh, presenting them with uh, the, the, treating their case in the way it should be treated and that they perceive the justice that they've come to seek at the court. So that, the, the, that was that song that was just, you know, uh, if there's a wrong way to do it, to make sure that that's not how we're doing it, right? Uh, so what are the symptoms that we find of self-representation? Those of you who are hearing officers in the room um, only deal with self-represented litigants. Uh, the judicial officers, pro tems, and judges, uh, we do deal with some parties that are represented by, by attorneys, uh, but, the, but even so, 90% of all tenants 90% of the civil litigants or 70 something percent of civil litigants are self-represented. So we also, um, in the justice courts, deal a lot with self-represented litigants in all aspects. So one of the things that we find is that they have incomplete or inaccurate forms. They don't know how to fill the forms. They don't know how to express what they want to express. And that can be frustrating to all of us, right? Because we don't know what they're trying to say. They get upset because we didn't understand what they were actually saying. They have very little knowledge about the law. They want us to do things that we're not allowed to do. Judge, please, I just want you to ask, yeah, I just came to ask you to give me 10 days to move out of my house instead of five. Or I just need you to consider the fact that, you know, I was sick and I couldn't pay. So they don't understand what it is that they can ask for. They know less about the procedure. This is one of the things that we'll talk about uh, in, this, in, in this presentation because this is the one that will tangle us up the most. The fact that they don't understand the procedure and we think that we need to make them follow the procedure very strictly as it should be and they don't know how to do that. So how do we get around that issue? 
They have no knowledge at all as how to present evidence, what evidence is, um, and, and how to go about bringing their evidence forward or what it is they're allowed to bring forward. And they rely on the internet for their information. Well, I got this offline. This is what it said on the internet. This is what I read. Um, we all know that the laws are very, are driven exclusively by jurisdiction. So the law in Arizona can be very different from the law in California. And so a lot of times what they've read is not what is applicable in, in our state. On the other hand, what does the self-represented litigant value? So they value a procedure that is fair and understandable. So this is how we are going to avoid any pitfalls in our judicial demeanor and in dealing with these litigants is ensuring that the process that we are giving them is a fair process and that they can understand it. If we get too technical, if we just read the law, and this is what the statute says, and this is the end of it, they are going to leave frustrated that they didn't understand what was happening. And I can assure you that if they understand what has happened in court, if they understand why the decision that was made was made, even if it doesn't come in their favor, they will leave, I'm not gonna say happy, but they will not leave as upset as if they, let, they leave not understanding what we have told them. If they don't understand why the decision was made the way it was, then that is what's going to lead to the frustration and the complaints. And this is kind of a, we'll get into tips into how to do these things a little further on down the presentation. So we talk a lot about procedural fairness. If the process is fair and we communicate that process to them correctly, this will lead to better process, to better compliance, Folks will follow through with what the judicial orders are if they better understand them. It will lead to approval, like I said, they will leave satisfied in the outcome even though they're not happy with the result. And it implies an access to justice, which is what we're looking for. That everybody feels that they've had their access to justice even though the result was not what they expected. Judge Marilyn Milian had her hands full yesterday. A landlord did not want to give his former tenants their deposit back, and he also wanted to be addressed by the judge in a very specific way. We haven't finished with April, Your Honor. What else is there to talk about with April? On a pure bit. Counselor, I am directing these proceedings. And I'm done. In here, 
Yeah. I'm Dr. McCaffrey, I'm not honey. Appreciate it. You are Dr. McCaffrey? I am indeed. Would you be whether I call you counselor, doctor, or anything else? I like Dr. Like McCaffrey, Your Honor, and it creates a tone of respect. Where I'm from, you sort of gotta earn that. Guess what? Where I'm from, you're born with it. So what, what, what are your thoughts about that exchange? <laughs> you know what? If that happened to me, I think I would turn around and say, case dismissed. <laughs> Just because of that attitude. Who had the attitude? Well, both of us did, but she called him honey. the That's doctor, power, right? yeah. That was in respect from the bench. Calling him honey and addressing him as sir, ma'am. Okay. So, on the one hand, this is one of the things that I was saying as to how we react to what we hear, right? So, was he a little bit rude? Was he a little bit cocky? Yes. Maybe, maybe. Well, she did, call him, she did call him honey, so he did feel insulted. Um, but it was her reaction to that that created the issue, right. right? Right. I thought what was interesting about this whole thing was that reaction was he said, where I'm from, you get respect just you know, when you're born or just from being here. And I think that's the takeaway here, that our litigants in court deserve respect because they are in front of us in court. Do we expect them to earn our respect? I think they can earn our disrespect, maybe, right? If they become to the point where, you know, they get very belligerent and we have a hard time um, dealing with that. But to right off the bat say that they do not deserve respect because they need to earn it, I think is, is, a, is a mistake. Yes? I think maybe a takeaway we can have from there, it's a lot easier to control your own behavior on the bench that control the other people in the room and you know noticing that okay I, I just did this I just called this person honey she could have modeled the good behavior there she could have said oh yeah I'm sorry you know we can we can fix that because we need to be respectful in the courtroom and then set the example for everyone else in the courtroom that they needed to do that themselves so I think you know we, we need to look first at ourselves because we can set good examples for how the how the the tone and the demeanor should be important. Right, I agree. I think that's a really good point that you're making, that we are the ones who set the example, and we are the ones who create the environment that we have. Um, you know, they do push our buttons a lot of times, and it is up to us to not let those buttons be pushed. You know, all of us who've had kids, especially teenagers in the home, we all know how, how they push you, and the difference in how we react to that is what makes, you know, the experience of being a parent better or worse, right? Um, and, 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 and I agree, I agree totally with that, that if you make a mistake, if you've done something that you shouldn't have done, if you said something that came out 
that shouldn't have come out. You can either apologize, take a break, do something, but not compound that situation by digging your heels in and making it worse. Who here calls litigants by their first name? Yes? I do when the last name is very difficult and I ask it's okay to ask if you both first names from both sides. And they oh okay. Okay. I mean if you ask permission if you ask permission that might be a solution. What is another way to deal with the difficult names? Ask them to pronounce it for you. I think that in this whole idea of perception and the person feeling that they are getting justice from us and that we are there to listen to them and we are there to consider them, to outwardly say, oh, your name is too difficult, I'm not going to even try to pronounce it, might seem kind of off-putting to somebody, like, oh, this judge isn't going to even listen to me. They don't even care what my name is, right? Um, there are different strategies to deal with the names. Um, for me, I guess I cheat a little bit because I speak Spanish, so I just read the names in Spanish, and I can tell you most of the time that works because most languages in the world are phonetic, except for English, and so most of the time if you read a Polish name in Spanish, you get pretty close. Um, but, you know, try to pronounce it, or if you can't pronounce it, just ask them. How do you pronounce your last name? And then try to repeat it. Write it down for yourself phonetically, so every time you have to convey it again, you have that name written down. Again, this is just a sign of respect, like not calling them honey, right? You had something, you had a question? No, I was going to say, that's what I did, write it down phonetically, and you repeat it yourself a couple of times, then generally it sinks in. I can, I can tell you that the response you get from a litigant who sees you make an effort to pronounce their name is, is really, it seems so trivial, yet it is very important to them. Anybody who has a difficult last name is very used to people either pronouncing them incorrectly or discounting them altogether, trying not even to pronounce it. And so the fact that you're making the effort makes a big difference. Yes. Especially on a heavy docket day, I have a little spiel I give to the beginning part of which is, ladies and gentlemen, if there's any conceivable way your name can be mispronounced, rest assured I'll do it. It's not intentional. I'm trying. Please correct me when you come on up. And it usually makes them smile because if I get it right, they're super pleased. And if I get it wrong, they're smiling because they knew it was coming anyways. And then they let me know. But it, it kind of puts them at ease that I told them up front, I'm going to screw up your name, not that, that, that's good. That's, uh, I learned that tip from my son. He used to do that when he was a bailiff in court. Um, he used to tell him, I'm about to mispronounce all your names. So, um, it, it is. It, it, it adds a little bit of humor and, and, and it kind of breaks the ice there too. All right. So as to procedural fairness, going back to the topic of procedural fairness, uh, the key of, is how you decide and not what you decide. This goes back to what I said before, the process sometimes it's more important that they perceive that they were listened to, that, that there was consideration in the case, and even if the outcome is not in their favor, they will leave satisfied that justice was done in the case. So procedural fairness requires the application of fairness, but it also requires the perception 
of fairness in making the decision. So if I make a fair decision but I don't explain it, for example, maybe we've lost that element of perception. And so the person leaves, again, unsatisfied, and that's where the complaints come in, right? The judge didn't listen to me. The judge didn't hear my, my arguments. The judge didn't take into account my evidence. All of those things because we don't give them that perception that, 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 they can, that they can feel that all of this was considered in their case. All right? And then again, it's not enough to be fair. The litigants must perceive that it's fair. In your packet, uh, there's, a, there's a page towards the end. Uh, after the procedural, there's a procedural, procedural fairness bench card. We have page uh, numbers, page 19. Okay, page 19 has a list that I prepared of tips, tricks, and traps. Um, and and it, it talks a little bit about some of these topics, how to avoid getting ourselves um, into these troubles with self-represented litigants and how to make sure that we explain and do everything for them in a way that they leave with the perception that it was fair. You know, obviously you can't make everybody happy because there's always two sides to every case. So one side is definitely not going to be happy with the outcome. The issue is that they understand that that was the outcome that needed to happen and that they understand that. Video. Sorry about the videos. Can we do that? That that's why it didn't show. Oh. Now to a troubling new video from a courtroom in Florida. A judge appearing to berate a domestic violence victim after she failed to appear in court and testify against her alleged abuser. Here's ABC's Lindsay Davis. You disobeyed the court order. This Florida judge is on the hot seat tonight, accused of re-victimizing a victim of domestic abuse. My anxiety is like, this is how it for me. You think you're getting anxiety now? You have been seeming right? Tense exchanges during this contempt of court hearing in July from a woman who failed to show up to testify against her husband who had a prior domestic battery conviction. I'm like homeless now. I'm living at my parents' house. I'm not in a good place right now. Her husband was accused of strangling her at knife point while she held their one-year-old child. He pleaded no contest to simple battery and spent 16 days in jail. She said she told the state she wanted to drop the charges and move on with her life. I hear my time in the contempt of court, I sent you to three days in the county jail. I don't do victims actually approached the judge after and told her she should have sentenced the woman to community service at a shelter rather than jail time, David. Difficult to watch. Let's think.
come back to the beginning again. Oops, I went too far. Okay, any thoughts on that video? Karma. Huh? Karma. <laughs> what do you mean karma? It's going to come back to bite her. <laughs> you know, domestic, domestic violence is a very thorny issue because of the, the cycle of domestic violence. And I mean, I think in this case there was no compassion on behalf of the judge who should understand that this is part of the domestic violence cycle, that the person who is a victim then recants or changes their mind or doesn't have the strength to actually go forward with the accusation against their accuser. For whatever reason, I thought the judge was excessively harsh um, and that they didn't take into account any of those things. But on the other hand, uh, the prosecutor must have been upset because they must have mounted a, a case, a trial. They had everything ready. And when the victim doesn't appear, the case gets dismissed because there is no there's no um, help in, in, in the prosecution by the victim. And so I guess in this case, the prosecutor wanted the victim or the courts wanted the victim to feel some punishment for having made the court go through that. I mean, I don't want to get in, this isn't a class to get involved that was the correct or incorrect decision. We're here to talk about the demeanor of the judge. So what about her attitude towards this, uh, this witness, or in this case, the defendant of the contempt, uh, what did we have anything to say about that? She was one-sided. She was what? She was just one-sided. She wasn't looking at the whole thing, the whole case. She was just seeing, seeing what you just said. She was just seeing that she had wasted time by not coming to the hearing prior, and now here was Right, but I, I just said that because I just assumed that, right? Do we know that? But do we know that? Why? Because she didn't explain it to her. Did she explain why she was giving her three days? You had something in the back? I, I agree. I mean, I don't want to get into the whole issue of contempt. I, I will say, just as a reminder, that we do not hold anyone in criminal contempt without having a hearing first uh, and appointing an attorney, uh, if, if, if that is the case. So, But we don't know what the laws in this state were, and maybe the procedure was correct. I, I don't want to get into that because we don't know. But I agree that the woman walked out of there not understanding why she was being sentenced to three days without understanding what the reasoning behind that was. And I think that, again, uh, to your point before, that the lack of compassion 
by the judge as if she didn't even care why the, what, what was happening to this person. Beyond uh, her judgment, the judge's judgment to give her the time in jail, she came across as being overly harsh. The perception was that she was overly harsh. That's true. Um, I've seen judges and or attorneys uh, argue cases or preside over cases as though they have a personal vendetta or it's, it's personal to them and it, it, it almost came across that way. There's so much emotion and um, involved in it that you have to question, is there something personal with this? Maybe something that happened in her, their life or something. But I've seen that where it, it, it turned, to me, it appeared very unprofessional because they're so worked up and the actual litigants are not. So I think that the takeaway then again is it's kind of what we've been talking about that what's going to set the tone is your demeanor, not the other side's demeanor. The other party could be stoic about it, or it could be a, a wreck like this woman was, but what's going to set the tone is your demeanor, how you come across as thoughtful, as considerate of all the evidence and all the situation. Um, sometimes you can just say, you know, this is out of my hands, the law requires that I find you in contempt. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the law in this case is. But something along the lines of, you know, I understand that you might have had your reasons for not coming, and I'm very sorry for your situation, but the law does not allow me to not find you in contempt, and this is what I'm going to do. I mean, somehow, to make that person understand why we're doing what we're doing, so it doesn't come across as a personal vendetta, right? Yes. It doesn't have to do with demeanor, but um, uh, in case people don't know, Scottsdale's, I think it's Scottsdale City, City of Scottsdale, has started a pilot program on domestic violence. We're now they're going to be um, uh, having cases where people are going to be on Facebook or some kind of, you know. Yeah, the, the shaming? I, uh, okay. <laughs> no, for domestic violence. Right, but it's a public shaming of domestic, of domestic abusers. And they're, they're doing, I think it's not domestic violence, I think it's non-payment of no, child support. No, oh, there's one so for non-payment of child support that they're, they're putting the names and everything no, on social media. No, this one is because they want to protect, you know, for that reason. And she probably didn't show up because she's afraid of the abuser. So Scottsdale is now doing a pilot program where they'll be, you know, online. I'm not sure how it works totally, but they just, they just started that program. But that she could appear online without having to appear right. in person. I think I'd have to read about that. I mean, um, yeah. All right, I want to jump down to the code of judicial conduct. Um, yes. Uh, when they provide you with these little vignettes here, uh, did they ever tell you what happened? No, I find these online myself, so I don't know what happened. So we don't know what happened to that judge, if anything. Oh, in this case, I don't know. Some of the other judges, we do know what happened, but if you can follow up on the story. Um, because if, if you notice at the end of the story, they said that the, it said that the advocate for domestic violence did not recommend against sentencing her to contempt. So it seems like there, must, there had to have been some kind of contempt. 
what sounded a little bit harsh might have been the three days in jail because the suggestion had been maybe to give him uh, community service as a punishment instead of jail time. Um, but we don't know. Maybe it went to the Code of Judicial Conduct. Maybe it went to, to some kind of a commission complaint. So our Code of Judicial Conduct, Canon 2, Rule 2.2, talks about impartiality and fairness. And it says that a judge shall uphold and apply the law and shall perform all duties of the judicial office fairly and impartially. Right? So this is part of what we were talking about, procedural justice. Um, it is one of the canons that we as judicial officers must uphold, which is to be fair and impartial. The comment to this rule, to this um, talks, it, this comment four says that it's not a violation for a judge to make reasonable accommodations to ensure self-represented litigants the opportunity to have their matters fairly heard. This is the only time that the, that the canons talk about dealing with self-represented litigants. They're not specifically in the canons, just as the comments. Uh, and then there's another rule that encourages the study is unrepresented. But that's the only time that self-represented litigants are mentioned in the rules. So, there is the idea that um, there's this principle that we call liberal construction that requires that all cases be determined on the merits in order to give the parties the full opportunity to ventilate their cause and defenses rather than on technicalities or procedural imperfections. So this goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning that the self-represented litigant does not know how to put on a case. They do not know how to file uh, what the, the requests are, they will send in uh, motions asking for things that are uh, not appropriate or not understanding what it is that they, what, what is it that they're allowed to file. And we can, in a technical sense, say this motion is not allowed and just dismiss it and ignore the request and keep on going. Or we can tell a, a, a plaintiff in either a small claims case or a civil case, you haven't presented the evidence, I'm dismissing your case, and we can just do that all on a technicality, right? I think that this liberal construction allows us to go in a little bit further. I'm not saying that we present the case for the litigant because we can't, but we can try to understand what it is that they are asking and what it is that we can, we can interpret from what they are asking. So if someone, uh, for example, uh, files a motion to, uh, to dismiss a judgment, right? There is no such motion to dismiss a judgment. What do we do with that motion? I would consider it, for example, as a motion to set aside. So I will interpret that as a motion to set aside and then rule on that motion. Instead of just saying, you said it wrong, I am not considering this at all. Right? What happens, I mean, there's a lot of, of, of small claim hearing officers here. What happens when 
they try to present evidence that's not really evidence. Do we just discount it, or do we give them an option of how to present it in a, in a, in a correct way? We give them an opportunity to be heard, right? Um, most of the times, it probably won't change anything. Uh, I mean, I think that, yes? So the problem I'm hearing about with small claims, a lot of these people, either the plaintiff or the defendant, don't understand what evidence is. Right. And is it okay to, I guess, coach you would say, do you want to present that as evidence? Right, I don't think the word would be coach. Uh, but the word, uh, but, but it, it would be, First of all, to remind them that anything that you are going to consider, they need to present it to you. So you can tell them, if you want me to consider that, you need to present that to me. Right? Because a lot of times they'll sit at the table and they'll be, I have all this information here. And they just sit there. Right? And so if we ignore that and then we end up ruling saying you didn't present anything, they're going to leave there upset that they weren't heard. Right? So we tell them, if you want me to consider all those papers that you have there on your desk, you need to present them to me so I may consider them. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. What would be incorrect is if you tell them, you need to file a paper that says this, this, and this. Right? If you're actually coaching them, which is why the word wouldn't be coaching. But just if you explain the procedure to them, um, in the same, as long as you are explaining the procedure, you're explaining the law, you are not out of line. Okay? Um, and again, to kind of understand and what they're trying to request, even if they're not using the correct words for it. And then kind of take it within, I am going to interpret this request as this. And then they are being listened to. Instead of just discounting outright, we have you know a lot of the the old school you know way of thinking about this was you know we look at this. It's your obligation if you didn't present any witnesses, if you didn't give me the right evidence, I'm dismissing. End of story. And we don't kind of encourage that presentation of the evidence. Yes. Well, rules of evidence. Judges can also question witnesses or call their own. So if you have a self-represented litigant having a hard time, you explain, hey, as a, as a trier of fact, I'm allowed to ask questions of witnesses. I want to make sure I understand. You ask them questions. They have a piece of paper. Are you asking the court to admit that into evidence? And so you can you can do that. As, as yeah, we'll get to that when we get okay. to some of the best practices. Yeah, that's true. Um, so if we review the case law, there's very little case law on the topic of uh, these dealing with self-represented litigants. But all review of the case law is that judges do not get into trouble for doing too much for a self-represented litigant. What will get you in trouble is not doing anything for them. So there is in, in the packet, I don't think we have any of the case law, but just some of the commission, um, commission complaints starting in 2015. It starts on page 20. Uh, when, we, when there's a, a complaint filed with the Commission of Judicial Conduct, um, if the Commission considers that there's no basis to the complaint, they will just outright dismiss it without even asking the Judicial Officer for any type of 
uh, reply. If there is uh, something to the complaint, the commission can either uh, file some kind of a public reprimand. If it's a public reprimand, the name of the judicial officer will be on that commission opinion and it will be made public. And as you'll see on a lot of these, these are, they weren't made public reprimands and they were cases that were dismissed, but they were dismissed with comments. Kind of like, we're not going to punish you for this, but you might reconsider your behavior in this case, you shouldn't be doing this, this, and that. And so um, I think this is something that um, after today you might want to read just to get an idea of what are the types of things that have gotten judicial officers in trouble with the commission. And as you will see, most of them have to do with not listening, not giving the defendants an opportunity to present their cases. That is basically the, the, the takeaway from this. Um, and then again, it is important to serve the ends of justice, but to maintain the confidence in the judicial system. And then this is what we talked about before, that sometimes in order to maintain that fairness, the judge should explain things that normally would not require explanation and point out rules and procedures that normally would not require pointing out. For example, if you want me to find in your favor, you need to present evidence, something that shows the validity of your claim. You know, you would think they're here in court, they filed a complaint, why would you need to explain that to them? But we do, we do, because you know, people just think that they write it down on their complaint and that is sufficient for you to consider it. A lot of times they'll attach paperwork to the complaint and think that you're just gonna see it just because it was attached to the paperwork and it doesn't have to be a part of the proceeding. There's just a lot of these things that, are, that have to be explained and we need, to, we need to change, we need to shift the way we look at how we conduct these hearings to allow for this explanation. Um, when we ask somebody, do you object, like if someone's gonna present some photographs and we ask the other party, do you object, Maybe we have to explain to them what does object mean. Do you have any reason to believe that these photographs aren't real? That these photographs don't, weren't taken by the person who says they took them? Or they weren't taken on the day they said they were taken? I mean, sometimes we just have to explain things um, so that we've given them a real opportunity to object instead of just saying, do you object? Because then they don't know what the answer is supposed to be. Or they'll object because I don't agree with it. Right? And that's not a basis for objection, and then we need to explain to them what the basis for the objection would be. Okay, so now we're going to go a little bit into the best practices. Things that we can do to avoid having these problems. So the litigants have to be given an opportunity to tell their story. I think we've talked about this enough. That they're perceived that they're treated with dignity and respect that they perceive that the decision-making process is unbiased and trustworthy. That's a little to what Judge uh, Salt was saying here, that, that we don't come across as having a vendetta or any stake in our decision, that it is just <clears throat> unbiased. That the litigants understand their rights and the decisions that are being made, and that they perceive that the courts are interested in their situation, 
to the extent that the law allows. That we're not just shrugging off whatever they have to tell us. Like we saw in the video of the woman who, who was being held in contempt. I have another video. in this video. Um, you know, I think that this video goes really to the heart of what we're talking about here, which is how do we react to what the, the defendants say in our courts, right? So obviously, this was a video from 2013, which was a few years before this whole push for procedural uh, fairness really took off. Um, I wonder if, if it would be looked at if that same judge would react that same way today. Maybe. Maybe they would. Um, but 
I think the important thing here is that the, the defendant was clearly out of line. She was disrespectful. She was, but you know, I think the takeaway for us here is how did the judge react to what the defendant did? Does anyone have any thoughts? Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's, it's, that is the judicial demeanor that you can not allow that to get to you is um, really important, mm -hmm. that you not allow them to push your buttons, right? Yes? I thought the other thing to start with, we should just say adios. Yeah. I mean, good deal. I mean, he called you back and don't deserve I mean, that was just... Right, but I mean, I think it's to the point that, that Judge uh, Salt here is saying that I think because he, I mean, he must be Cuban-American or something, it's in, in, in Florida, um, and so maybe he also felt that, that you think that you can say adios because I'm, you know, Latino or something like that, and, and I agree that it was maybe that he allowed that to get to him. Well, yeah. I was just wondering, how, how did the... So it's a teaching. It's a teaching moment for everybody. Do you have a question or a comment? Yeah, just a comment about uh, disrespecting you by uh, calling your girlfriend. You know, the only time people go through security is getting on an airplane, coming into the court. I think sometimes they're so nervous that they overreact the other direction. I mean, I think that's good that you look at why this is happening and you don't just react to it, right? I think that's what we're trying to get at here. I'm not saying which is the, the right reaction or not the right reaction, but that we understand 
what makes us react and how we're going to react to it. That is what, that what we're trying to talk about today. My question is, for example, is there anything wrong with not reacting? I, I want to address that because a lot of times with small claims court, I haven't seen that much in the traffic court, but small claims, after the case and make the decision, both the plaintiff and the defendant, a lot of times they say, thank you, and they're walking out. Generally speaking, I don't think I should react to that because I'm not really favoring one or the other, I'm basically favoring the facts. My question is, how should we react to somebody saying, either, either plaintiff or defendant saying, thank you? I think there's nothing wrong with telling them. I appreciate your professionalism. I appreciate the way uh, you were both able to present this case in court in a way that um, allowed me to make a fair decision. I mean, you can acknowledge the, the thank you. I don't think it means, I think what they're thanking you for is for that fair proceeding, which is what we want to get at, not because you made the decision in one case for one or the other. Yes? You know, again, um, that uh, apparently Hispanic judge, when we just see a, a glimpse of that, many times we have no idea whether one, she's been in court before him before, and two, there could have been 15 minutes of proceedings before that, and he could have just been right at the end of this book. Well, and that is true. The problem is, how many times are we at the end of our rope? How many times have we sat through three hours of calendar and when the last person comes up and you're like, oh, seriously? Right? But we don't want to say that. We don't want to make that person feel differently than the person who got us, you know, when we just had our cup of coffee and we were all happy and perky. Right? We want to be able to maintain that demeanor all through all the proceedings and for all the litigants in the same way. There are a lot of things that affect each one of us, and probably each of us have different pet peeves, different things that bother us. One of my things that bothers me, but I have chosen over the years to just totally ignore, is the way people dress in court, right? I mean, I think that Arizona has become very relaxed in the dress. I mean, to the point where you go to weddings now and people still wear jeans and, but, um, People show up in court in, in tank tops. People show up in court in, in shorts and flip-flops. And so you ask yourself, are you taking this seriously or not? But I realize that maybe they are. Maybe it doesn't mean anything. Maybe that's just Arizona. This is how we dress and no one thought twice about it. Or maybe they're doing it on purpose to. But should I consider that when I am imposing a sentence or when I'm making a decision. Um, we have to make the decision based on merits, not on any of those other issues. It's irrelevant. It's exactly. And so we just sometimes choose to ignore it, right? Maybe once in a blue moon you'll make a comment, don't lean on the bench or, you know, don't slack or don't. I mean, I had once I had told somebody, um, when you come back next time, why don't you wear pants that will hold themselves up? Because he, the whole time he was holding his pants up. I just couldn't stop myself, right? But it, maybe it's not relevant. Maybe it's something that I shouldn't have said. Maybe I did let them get the best of me, right? Yes? Well, back to the issue of whether or not you should be 
depends on the situation. Um, personally, I was appointed as a pro tem when I was fairly young. I was 31, my first appointment, and I had more than my fair share of, uh, I thought you were the secretary to, uh, I want to marry you kind of thing. While I was on the bench, rose up. Uh, and basically, those types of things, I couldn't, I wasn't going to ignore a comment like that. It needed to be addressed. Uh, and usually I would say something to the effect of, if they, they said you know, something like, oh, I want to marry you, I would smile and say, well, thank you, but that's not going to help you today. You're here for an arraignment on and then launch into this. Uh, so I think it, for female judges, there's a unique sort of individual thing that can happen. I mean, I believe some male judges have had it too, but uh, I think the female judges may experience a little more. I, I mean, litigants will try to get away with whatever they can think that's going to give them the upper hand. I am not that young, um, and I have not been asked for marriage, but <laughs> but I do get a lot of people telling me how pretty I look, how nice I look. Oh, I, I wear usually a brooch on my robe, and so the comment is always, oh, I love your brooch. You know, this kind of flattery. Uh, right. And I'll just say thank you and move on. You know, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't want to give them more, um, you know, add any wind to their sails, thinking that they're going to get anything with that by adding. But I don't ignore the comment. I'll just say thank you and, and move on. But again, it's like I said, everybody has the issues that you, we have our own particular issues with, right? What happens when we get someone who has tattoos all over their face? Can we keep a straight face? Can we make sure that we're not looking at them? Are we letting that in affect our, our decisions? It is all of these things that should not be affecting anything that we do except for the, 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 the case itself, right? As to ignoring the comments, I mean, that is, a, that is a strategy to deal with these things. You know, sometimes they'll turn around and they'll mutter something under their breath what do I gain by saying, what did you say? Come back here and tell me that again. Right? What did I gain? I'm going to throw him in jail for 30 days? I mean, what difference is it going to make at this point? I did have someone uh, a few months ago who made a gesture with their hand and, uh, and the noise, which to me sounded like, like, a, like a gun. And, and I did stop that person. I said, excuse me, are you threatening me? Right? Um, and I didn't do anything about it. I just told them, I'm watching, I'm looking. I saw what you did. And you know, the person right away back down, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, that wasn't my intention. You know. um, so there are certain things that you might want to address and not just let go. Um, but it's sometimes if they turn around and mutter something under their breath, sometimes I'll let it go. Maybe I won't. I mean, all depends on the situation, on the person, what the case is, if they're gonna come back. What if they're never coming back? What if they just have to go pay? What is, what is the point? I mean, I don't know that there's an answer that I can say, this is what you need to do in this situation. All I'm saying is that we're here to talk about our demeanor and that we need to know how we react and what things make us react. And to be aware of it. 
if you know that someone comes in with an attitude that might get you started, maybe you want to say, you know, let's take a break, take five minutes and come back. Uh, before you find yourself in a situation that you might end up doing or saying something that you might regret later on. Uh, or because you're at the end of your rope, because you've had a difficult morning and someone comes in and you're like, this is not going to be good, I should take a break before I see this person. You know, we should know in ourselves what is going to affect our demeanor. Um, I think we have about half an hour. Yes. Uh, so I'm just going to run through these. Uh, some of these are just strategies that we talked about, uh, how to avoid some of these issues. Uh, to begin a procedure, the important thing, I know you've heard this a hundred times, record all of your interactions. It says here with self-represented litigants, but record all your interactions with everyone. These three rules, protective orders, criminal procedure, and eviction, specifically in the rules, address that they should be, that the recording should be turned on. In the others, the rules aren't specific, but it's still a good practice, a best practice to always turn on the recording. I can tell you, and like I said, if you read through these commission complaints, the record most of the time, and you will know if you think it's going to harm you because you know who you are and you know what you have said. But the truth is the record can only help you, never hurt you. How many times are these, these complaints that go to the commission, the ones that get dismissed without the judge even knowing that they were filed, are because the litigants will say, the judge yelled at me, the judge was rude to me, the judge told me, you know, whatever, and the commission pulls the record, they listen to it, and they're like, none of that happened. And so that record can only help you, because if they go back and that record doesn't exist, now it's your word against the litigants' word. When I can tell you that most of the time that record can only help you, not hurt you. <clears throat> Again, make sure that the parties understand what is being decided at the beginning. When they come in, they should know what you're going to be deciding so they, you can keep them focused on what they need to focus on. Um, the, the example says here, the order of protection. If we have a hearing in order of protection, we can tell them, what I am going to be deciding today is if an act of domestic violence has occurred, and that is what I need to decide. And so when they start going off topic about how rude this person was to them, or how complicated it was to ask for the order of protection because the staff made them wait, or whatever it is, other topics they're going off on, you can say, I, I hear what you're saying, and I is if, was, if there was an act of domestic violence, and try to direct them back on topic. And that way they know from the beginning what the expectation is of them coming in. I mean, I'm sure that all the hearing officers, when you explain what a small claims hearing is, what you're going to be deciding, you know, to keep it on topic so we try not to stray from that. And so the person knows, because a lot of times, like we said, they don't know the procedure, they don't know the rules, and so they don't know what they're supposed to tell you and what they're not supposed to tell you. Uh, the civil pretrial conference, we're here to see if the parties can reach an agreement to resolve their case short of trial. 
you have an absolute right to take your case to trial and I'm not trying to infringe on your right, but we find that many times the parties can meet and have a dialogue about their case, we can resolve them without the need for a trial. That is why we brought you here today, right? So they know what the expectation of that hearing is. Um, outline the procedure to be followed at the hearing, including the responsibility for the burden of proof. Um, in any civil case or small claims, you would explain what the standard of proof is. Uh, the plaintiff has the, the burden of proof in this case, which means that they have to prove uh, by a preponderance of the evidence that uh, the, the facts alleged in the complaint um, actually occurred. And then how we're going to do the trial, you're going to have an opening statement, and then the direct and cross. I mean, explain what the procedure is, lay it out from the very beginning so they have that expectation and they know what is coming. That way we don't get frustrated when they don't follow that. Um, what is the typical frustration that happens when we ask them if they have cross-examination, right? What do they start doing? They start testifying, right? So we can tell them, remember at the beginning I explained that you will have your opportunity to testify. Right now this is only your opportunity to ask questions. So you've already laid it out at the beginning. You can just remind them, remember I told you, this is coming, you will have your chance. And so that also helps to temper the expectations and to keep things on track. Make sure they understand and make sure they have an opportunity to tell their side of the story. One of the things that we find very typically is that you will begin to hear evidence in a case and right away you make up your mind. Right away you see the documents and you know who's right. And so it is very easy to forget that they have an opportunity to tell their story. We have an opportunity to control the proceeding. We don't have to let them ramble. We don't have to let them go on and on. We can control the time limits, but we must give them a chance to tell their story even though you know it's not true or you think it's not going to change your mind you must give them that opportunity uh, this is I can tell you of the complaints that we get um, is probably the biggest complaint they didn't let me tell my side of the story sometimes it's true sometimes it's not but this is the major complaint again if you read these Commission complaints that is what you'll hear yes Right, that is a, that's a good point. You know, a lot of times they'll say they didn't hear me and it, it, you know, they were given plenty of opportunities. I mean, it, it doesn't always mean that. But again, this is always an issue of perception. Did they understand that they had this opportunity to tell you everything? Did they perceive that you listened to everything they had to say? If you listen to them but are constantly cutting them off, then they still have that idea that you didn't listen to them. 
even though you can say, I gave them three opportunities to speak. It's always, you know, go back to kind of what their perception of what you're doing is. Were you actually listening? Were you actually paying attention? Those guys, so that, that's where the, the perception comes in. And this is what I said, you can control the time, you can indicate the time available for the hearing. Um, you know, you can just say something like this, I'll let you know in advance that we only have 30 minutes for this hearing. Please understand that at times I may keep us moving to ensure that we get to everything we need to and properly hear from both of you. So you can tell them from the beginning that you might, um, you know, you, and you can say, do you have anything additional to what you've already told me? So they don't start rehashing the same stuff over and over again. If they start telling you something again, you can say, I understood you explained to me that he came over to your house that day and that you got into an argument. Do you have anything else that you want to add to that? You know, so, you know, give them that feedback that you were listening, that you heard them, and that you are taking into account that information. Uh, explain the law and the elements of the case that helps them um, focus on their testimony. This, is, this example here is for an injunction against harassment. Um, for most of you who are hearing officers, uh, for example, in a civil traffic case, it's, some, it's you know, usually a good idea to maybe read the statute and explain the statute. So in this case, the officer has to prove that you were driving and that your speed at the time that you were driving was not reasonable and prudent. You know, so they know ahead of time what it is that you're going to be listening to and what you're going to be considering. And so then when they start going off the tangent as to, you know, some other topic as, you know, that you can focus them back and remember that what I need to decide here is your speed was reasonable and prudent. And so that way you can kind of keep them on topic. If it's, a, if it's possible, divide the proceedings into segments so that we talk about one topic at a time because sometimes they have a very hard time um, being able to write, you know, give direct testimony on three different topics and then cross-examine on three different topics. So maybe you can say, okay, let's consider the issue of the dog first and then we'll take, you know, consider the issue of the cat whatever it is, you know, maybe separate them into segments so they have an easier time focusing. These are just possible tools that you can use. Use simple language and invite questions. In this case, your landlord is claiming that you have not paid the rent for July. Is that true? Why? This is one of the cases when I talked about um, being able to kind of fill in the blanks for the defendants. They may not come in and say, I have a defense to the non-payment of rent. My defense is that a partial payment was taken. They might not even know that that's a defense. They might not know how to express that. But if you start talking to them and they say, and I saw the landlord on the 10th and I gave him $500, then you're like, okay, I now have a defense, possible defense for non-payment of rent. And so we can kind of fill in those blanks for them. And now consider this as a defense, right? We don't need them to articulate the words necessarily. <clears throat> and then in this case, this is kind of to, to the point that you were saying before that we, 
you know, we tell them, for example, all kinds of people cannot pay their rent for all kinds of reasons, that is not their fault. That does not make you a bad person, but it does entitle the landlord to a judgment. So you're being empathetic, you're listening to what they're telling you, you're not just saying, well, you didn't pay, so I'm signing a judgment. You know, you're telling them, I hear you, I understand, I'm sorry, but I have to sign the judgment anyway. Um, and then this is what, I don't remember who said, that you can ask the questions, um, and, but just explain to them why you're asking questions. That you're doing it um, not to cut, you know, I'm not helping anyone, I'm not trying to cut you off or anything, it's just that these are the things that I need to get at, and um, these are the things that I need to decide, so I'm trying to get to the issues that are important to me. And then this one, pay attention and look like you're paying attention. Yes? Along with uh, that, talking to you, one of the things I use is that I use the term I, uh, as a clarification to what you said. I ask a question. And so it kind of gets you at any Right, or to make sure that I understood correctly. You know, something like that. If you preface it with, I just want to be sure that I understood that correctly. Uh, you were there when that happened? You know, something like that, just to... Because then you don't want to, because, because the person is inartful in asking their questions, then you'll make a decision saying, well, I wasn't clear if you were there or not, so I'm not going to find in your favor, for example, right? 20 minutes. Okay. Um, and then this one is pay attention and look like you're paying attention. Uh, this last phrase, don't use your cell phone on the bench, we put it there because it's happened, so... Um, I, hopefully all of you will laugh and say, how can that ever happen, right? But it has happened, so just so you know. All right, we have another video. See if I can figure this out. Oh, it didn't work? Oh, because I didn't, I didn't close it out. I just minimized it. They was kind of walking toward me when they had to stop. And when they left, what angle was your point of view? It was kind of walking away from me. So would you say you got a better shot at them going in? And don't shake your head, I'm not done yet. Wait till you hear the whole thing. So you could understand this. And not so much coming out? You could say that. I did say that. Would you say that? <laughs> yeah. So, uh... My cousin Vinny, one of my favorite movies ever. Um, so this just had to do with pay attention and make it look like you're paying attention, right? If you're constantly looking at your watch, if you're constantly drumming your fingers, if you look like you're impatient, that is not a good sign for the defendant. You know how you react and how tired you get and, and do whatever it is that you need to do to make sure that you're paying attention. Um, a lot of times, 
taking notes helps us pay attention and stay awake. Um, whatever it is that you need to do, um, you know, there's nothing worse than when they say objection and you're like, uh, what? <laughs> um, can you repeat the answer, right? Um, but just just make sure that the parties understand that you're engaged in the proceeding. All right, this is uh, managing the evidence, uh, permit narrative testimony from the self-represented litigant. You don't, they don't need to ask questions. They can just tell you the story. Ask questions, we've already talked about this, about how you can ask the questions to get to the evidence you need. Um, for example, this is a this is a good example of the one for the, the the order of protection. The judge in an order of protection needs to find that there is a specific relationship between the parties, and so there would be nothing wrong with asking that question: Are you married? Are you, do you live together? Something to establish that that relationship exists, because without that, the judge couldn't find for an order of protection. And so this is like an element of the offense or the, of, the, of the case that would be necessary to prove. And so you could just start off first telling me, you know, what is your relationship to the defendant? So you can get to those topics. Um, I'm sorry? Did someone say something? No. Oh. Um, this is the thing about not avoid admitting evidence for only technical reasons. Um, you, you know, you've got to be very careful with this to make sure that you're admitting things that are appropriate, that you're not crossing the line. This is, you know, always kind of a, a more difficult thing to navigate. Um, but, you know, it's very typical that they'll come and they want to show you an invoice, they want to show you a photograph, they want to show you something and they're like, here, here it is, right? And the other party, who is also self-represented, doesn't know to even question that. Because they're like, okay, he presented the picture, well, the judge is gonna look at it, right? What can I do, how can I stop it? So maybe it's up to you to say, why don't you tell me a little bit about this photograph? Who took it, where did you take it, when did you take it? Just to, you can satisfy your own interest in knowing that there's foundation or that the, that the photograph is something that you can consider. Yes? I usually just, uh, if they want to present something, I say show it to the other party first. Well, right, the other party has to look at it. The problem is that they will file something without foundation. And so for, if they show me a picture, and they're like, see, this is what the house looked like. When? Who took this picture? How do I know? I mean, you need more information than just having the picture sometimes, right? And so there's nothing wrong with you establishing that foundation is what I'm saying. Uh, probe for details. Uh, this is, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about how the conversation started? How did you respond? You know, just kind of uh, get the information that you need. Uh, maintain the control of the courtroom with courtesy and respect. Um, again, you know, this is the, the, the demeanor thing. If we need to maintain control of our courtroom by kicking people out or yelling at them, um, then we might have an issue, right? 
Um, I mean, there are, there are difficult litigants out there, and it, 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 it just happens. I mean, there's some people who will not listen, who will not be reasoned with, who will interrupt continuously. That will happen. But there are many ways to deal with these people, and the thing is, again, like I said, not allow that to make us react. The person who is constantly interrupting, you know, you can, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll lower my voice, I'll move away from the microphone. So when you start talking to them, they have to, they have to be quiet in order to hear you because you've lowered your voice. And so that's one way to get them to stop talking, for example. Um, sometimes I'll just tell them, you've spoken, now it's my turn to speak, you know. But however it is, what we just don't want to do is say, oh, you've interrupted too much, you're out of here. Um, Ten minutes. Okay. And, and again, these are kind of the things that we've already talked about. I think you're telling me things that are not directly relevant to this case or stop making disparaging comments about the defendant. That's not appropriate behavior. It makes it harder for me to listen and consider the points you're making. It's not helpful in deciding this case. You know, just focus on what happened on Friday. Just kind of keep the conversation towards where you need to keep it. Um, some people, you know, are just gonna be more difficult to deal with than others. In general, one of the things that, that I find is usual, I don't know with hearing officers, because a lot of times you don't wear the robe, although you are sitting on the bench. Um, people who are difficult, you know, if you present yourself as an authority, a lot of times they will kind of back down. They're not as defiant with, with people in authority. Um, and then again, clarify the relevance of the testimony when it's uncertain. Uh, you know, I want my girlfriend to come and testify. Why, can you tell me what she's going to be talking about that will help me make a decision in this case. Well, she's just gonna tell you how difficult my ex-wife has always been. Well, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about what happened on Friday. Was she there on Friday? No. You know, those kind of things. Um, Can you skip ahead to concluding? Okay. I'm just going to jump ahead to the conclusion so we, if we don't have much time. I don't know where that goes. All right. This one is very important. If possible, announce your decision from the bench. Because part of the procedural fairness is the, the defendant's or the litigant's understanding the reason for your decision. Anything that is taken under advisement they don't get that element of understanding why the decision is made. You could, if you take it under advisement, any case that I take under advisement, I actually issue a ruling where I explain my decision because I want them to know how I got to that decision. But to make a decision and just send a judgment does nothing to help anybody. They don't know what evidence was considered, especially if you change the numbers. I'm suing for $2,000, I get a judgment back for 1000 How do I know how the judge got to that decision? How do I know where that... So, the only reason you would not make a decision from the bench is either because you need to do some studying on the law because you're not exactly sure um, how you're going to decide, 
So that is a, a base. I need to look at the case law or I need to, you're not going to tell them I need to consult with my mentor, but you know, maybe you need to do that so you can make a decision. And the other reason would be because you're afraid that gonna, the fist fight's going to break out in the courtroom if you make a decision for one party or the other. But those should be the, those should be the exceptions and not the rule. You should mostly decide from the bench because it is very important, and I can't emphasize this enough, that you explain your decision. Yes? Supposing there's a mountain of evidence that needs to be studied and we've got a full docket, is it appropriate to take it under advisement? It is. If you can't make that decision at that moment, then you have to take it under advisement. But you need to tell them why you're taking it under advisement. Look, you've presented me with all these documents, and I actually have another case that I have to call, and I don't have the time to read this right now. So I am going to take this under advisement. I will hopefully have my ruling for you by the end of next week. You will get it in the mail. Again, like I said, it would be helpful for those litigants if they get that ruling with an explanation as to why. This court having considered the evidence presented at the hearing and having considered the documents that were presented, uh, find that the plaintiff has met their burden and that, uh, you know, whatever it is that you're, you know, if it's something very simple, you can just get away with, you know, they've met the burden. If it's something a little bit more complicated, you might want to explain. I couldn't consider the damages to the car because those were on a different day. I mean, whatever it is that your decision is, so at least they have an idea as to why you're taking some money out or not money out. That's why it's just so much easier to do it from the bench if you can. I mean, I'd like to think that small claims hearings in general don't have that amount of documentation that needs to be considered. And that, so that should be the exception more than the rule, right? Um, explain the decision and acknowledge the positions and strengths of both sides. And so again here, the plaintiff did establish that the defendant was negligent in repairing her car. She did establish that she is entitled to $1,500 for the cost of the repairs. However, they did not establish that they were entitled to the cost of the limousine that she used while her car was being repaired. So you, you, you explain exactly what you consider. Uh, make sure that they understand the decision and what will come after that, right? Um, you know, do you understand you're not allowed to contact them by, by text or only by text and only about the children? I mean, be very specific in making sure that they walk out of there knowing what they need to know, knowing what they need to do and what's expected of them. Um, and then you can, if, if it happens, you can tell them what, what's going to happen next in the case. Um, in the case of the small claims, there's really not much that happens after that. Uh, you, you can, they can get information from the front counter as how to collect on the judgment. You can't give them that information. Uh, but just anything that's expected of them um, that they should be told. In the cases that they have a right to appeal, make sure that they're informed of the right to appeal. And then this is what we talked about before, right? I want to thank you for being professional. This had the potential of getting ugly, but it didn't. I mean, it's always good to acknowledge, thank them for coming. Um, 
you know, thank them for 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 being, you know, civil to each other. I don't know, whatever. Just making sure that there's an acknowledgement that they were there. Um, if in the heat of the moment, acknowledge and pivot, acknowledge the emotion and the concern. I understand this is important to you, but this is what I need to determine, right? To, to avoid things getting ugly. Uh, and then keep the focus on the factors that are external to them. Don't let them get worked up with the things that work them up, the defendant, right? You'll, you know, small claim cases have a big potential of getting emotional. Civil traffic has a potential of getting emotional. A lot of times people take their cases to civil traffic hearings just because they were upset with the officer. And all they really want to do is vent about how rude the officer was to them. And so, you know, some acknowledgement that I understand that this is a topic that is very emotional to you, that this affects you, but understand that I only need to determine if you were speeding or if you were driving in the carpool lane or whatever it is that you need to decide. But acknowledge, acknowledge that you're hearing them and that you understand what's frustrating them because they'll never let it go if you don't. My decision must be based on your driving, not on what happened at the traffic stop. Right, something like that. <clears throat> and then again, you know, paraphrase and pivot, restate the position to communicate your understanding. Sir, if I understand you correctly, you're asking the court to, you know, and, and, and restate what they're asking for so you can get them back um, into a calmer position. But what we need to talk about right now is this. These are just phrases that can help you. Keep your voice level and firm. If they get loud, lower your voice. Do not argue with their logic. If, you know, they, they'll, 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 they'll stay on the topic over and over and over again, and there's just no point in arguing with that. You know, it's very typical that after you've made your ruling that they'll continue, but you didn't take into account this, but you didn't consider, I considered all the testimony, I considered, you know, this is my decision, this is what I'm basing it on. Um, don't argue back with them, don't say, well, I can't consider that, I can't, you know, you've already told them that. You know, just try to keep it calm and not fight with them. And then be considerate. If they're not being abusive, you might want to allow them their time to vent. That's what they want. They want to come to court to talk. They want to tell you, you know, how mean the police officer was on the stop. Why they only stopped them because they were profiling, or why they only, you know, whatever it was that, that they have their issues with. In as long as they're not going over, they're not repeating themselves over and over, you know, kind of allow them that time to speak. Even if it's testimony that you're not going to consider because you know you can't consider it, just give them their opportunity to talk. And then don't engage. Use silence. Just be quiet and pause. You know, sometimes they'll just wear themselves out by talking. Uh, humanize the experience. Thank them for the cooperation. Use plain English. Engage them in dialogue. Focus on the matter at hand. Make eye contact appear to be alert and engaged. I, you know, again, I can't say this enough. Um, and then manage your courtroom to promote perceptions of fairness. Be courteous to all involved. Right? How many times that we're on the bench, the clerk comes in to ask you something, you just turn around and start talking to the clerk. 
you know, you might want to say, excuse me a moment, this must be something urgent, I'll be right back. You know, talk to your clerk and then apologize again for the interruption. Just be courteous to them, make them feel important and that your attention is directed to them. And I think we're out of time, but this is a time for questions or comments. Any questions? No questions? Thank you. All right. Please turn in your evaluations on the back table and